I think what you should do is find the person responsible for this mess and see that they're punished. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And we are delighted also to be working once again with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you feeling? Are you safe? And what's going on in the Emerald City? So I'm super safe right now. I'm about six feet from the microphone. We should be pretty good. I mean, I'm feeling pretty <laughs> good about it. Really. I have- All right. Well, we're social distancing. We're about, uh, what, 3,200 miles away? That's a factor of six, somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Who's well, the ma- I tell you. Gary's a mathematician, it, too, isn't he? Can he jump no. in there? No, <laughs> I'm the <laughs> math whiz. He's, He's like, uh, no. I'm the math whiz. Unbelievable. <laughs> there, uh, you know, we, we watch MSNBC religiously in our yeah. household, and I get updates primarily from New York, as you might imagine. It's just unbelievable what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And pretty much the same goes for our beloved Seattle. They were interviewing Mayor Durkin today, this yes, morning. This and morning. I thought it's, it's really heroic what the people of Seattle and Puget Sound, all of Washington state, are doing to fight back against this invisible enemy. And they showed the blue flag saying, hashtag, we've got this Seattle flying proudly above the space needle, atop the needle. I tell you, I got a lump in my throat. I thought, my God, I am so proud of you guys. Well, thank you. I speak for everyone here, I guess. We are doing what we can. We want to flatten that curve. And that's, yes, that's the name do. of the game now, worldwide. Yep. We're, we're in Florida, and we are anticipating it coming our way. Everybody says, look out. You're you're on the list. You're, you're coming up soon. Your turn. So so can I just jump in? What does that feel like for you? Do you have a little anxiety? A lot of dread. A, a lot of anxiety. Okay. A lot of right. dread. We mm-hmm. know it's coming. We watch what's happening in other places. But and you're already kind of taking a huge cue from the us who are, are you know, it's obviously we uh, are, ground zero, right? in our backyard well i'll tell you we are altering how it is that we're doing things Mm -hmm. primarily we're staying home much much more we used to go the grocery store for a Mm -hmm. single item you know need to go get some cream or need to go get a loaf of bread or need to go get something no Uh, once a week max to the grocery store and staying in as much as possible and uh, ordering in a few things Mm -hmm. and trying to see as few people as we can see we are going to talk today about the virus and its its political and economic repercussions with somebody that Gary and I have interviewed eight times. This is going to be his ninth visit with us. It needs to be said too, Suzanne, the man keeps some hours that others would regard as odd, though I've done that much myself from time to time where I keep, I'm a, a night owl in order to get work done. I sleep late into the morning. I'm quite familiar with that. Stefan Schwartz is an incredible intellect. He is a social commentator. He is multifaceted in his approach to life, especially the life of the mind. But don't let that fool you. He is remarkably and grittily attuned to the world of politics and the dimensions of political life in America. Stephan A. Schwartz is a distinguished consulting faculty member at Saybrook University, a research associate of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research 
editor of the daily web public publication Schwartz, Schwartz, I can say that, SchwartzReport.net. That is a bit of a tongue twister, which I have read many times, and columnist for the peer-reviewed research journal Explore. He has also written articles for Smithsonian, Omni, American History, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Huffington Post, and he's a Washington person living in Langley, and we welcome him to Manson Mitchell for the ninth time. We are so thrilled to have him here today. Hello, Stefan Schwartz. How are you? Good morning to you. We are healthy. The big question is, how are you doing, Stefan, and how are you staying safe? Uh, well, I, I live on an island, and on my island, we have a very socially active community, and and so we are in complete lockdown, as Governor Inslee, we have an excellent governor, thank goodness, has advised, and uh, the restaurants are closed, although they're providing service to first responders and healthcare people, and, and uh, the markets have gone through a whole process to protect their workers, and so, you know, we're getting by. We've had uh, 24 cases on the island and one death, but um, we we just we're all hunkered down like everybody else. We are too, and and we're learning how to hunker down because we we used to leave our house at the drop of a hat, get in the car and go somewhere, and now we have to think two, three, and four times how necessary the trip is and try to go out as little as possible and see as few people as possible. That's a very different lifestyle. And Suzanne gives me a hard time if I go to the drive-thru to pick up food. This is the kind of thing, Governor Cuomo was saying during his briefing this morning that they're 100 years from now, they're going to be writing about this pandemic. That mm -hmm. makes sense, but he said, in 10 years' time, those of you who survived this and will, who will have lost loved ones, you're going to be talking about this, and you'll have a tear in your eye, but you'll also be able to take pride over what you did to fight back, what you did to protect yourself and your loved ones, how you could contribute to your community. It's something that is going to be permanently embedded in the life of everybody existing around the world today, a unique experience for all of us. Well, a unique in the idea that it is a pandemic and that it is global. We have had um, unbelievable tragedies here that were in various locations around the United States, especially when you think about the, the various mass shootings. But this is happening everywhere all at once. It's very, very different from an isolated case in one location or another location. It's in every location. Stefan, thank you for joining us. I think this ought to be seen as a kind of wake-up call, because my feeling is, uh, based on the medical literature that I read and all the other stuff, you know, I read about 80 journals a day, I think this is the first of a series of pandemics that are going to happen, because as climate change uh, progresses in its cycle, the viruses and bacteria are going to mutate to accommodate for their new circumstances. And that's basically what the coronavirus pandemic is. is COVID-19 is a, as they say, novel coronavirus. So I, I hope that what's going to come out of this 
is the recognition that we must give up the illness profit system, which passes for health care in the United States, and we must create a system of universal birthright, uh, single-payer health care. I just read a story this morning about a teenager who died because he didn't have health insurance and they didn't treat him. So we need to begin. To, I, I hope that this pandemic is going to awaken us that we need to be better prepared for what is coming. And, and one of the things that stands out for me is the abject failure of the federal government uh, to, to be prepared and to respond quickly and appropriately. So my hope is we're going to all wake up to this and and lay the track that we need to get universal health care so that issues about insurance and that sort of thing just stop being issues. You know what is so interesting to me about our conversation today, Stefan, is that um, we've interviewed you before today eight other times, and I couldn't tell you which number it was, but it was probably in the last uh, two or three years that you, on our radio show, you said, we are at a crossroads right now. And we need to, you know, we, either humanity is going to go away or we are going to solve our problems. You were very prophetic in that way. And it was repeated sometime later by futurist Barbara Marks Hubbard. And I said to Gary, here's Stefan Schwartz and Barbara Marks Hubbard saying the same thing. We're at a crossroads. Well, right now we are in the middle of getting this fixed or you know, what is going to happen to humanity? They're, we're going to go away in bulk. Well, if what's going to happen, uh, Sudan, is that uh, you, you look at, for instance, the Nordic countries. Most Americans, because we get fed such pablum uh, in most public co uh, political commentary, most people don't realize that in the Nordic countries, people are healthier they live longer, they're more affluent, they're better educated. Um, and all of that arises because they have structured societies. New Zealand is another one. Holland is another one. They have societies which have structured themselves to make well, social well-being. That is the well-being of the individual, the family, the community, the state, the nation, the earth itself. Societies which have made well-being their first priority are doing better. You're not reading a lot about Danish uh, coronavirus because these countries have recognized that making well-being your first priority is the cheapest, the most efficient, the most productive, the nicest, uh, the easiest to implement, the longest-lasting approach. And that countries who make profit their only social priority are having a very hard time. And most of the problems that we are enduring right now as Americans arise from the fact that we have we don't have a health care system. We have an illness profit. And we're the intricacies the of that, that 
Pardon me for interrupting, Steph. I want to make sure that people understand what you mean by the term. You're the first one I ever read who used that term, and you explain it there. And it would be good to refresh people's memories or let them know for the first time. An illness profit system seems to imply that profits over people, that medicine is good as long as it makes money, or is that too extreme an assessment? No, that's a very good assessment. I mean, that's exactly the truth. You can listen. Look at this ventilation thing that uh, to get these ventilators. I mean, you have these people, the the medical personnel who are putting their lives at risk and who don't have the the personal protective equipment that they need because it wasn't stockpiled properly, it wasn't planned properly. Why? Because it wasn't profitable enough to do it until there was a crisis. Or look at the closing of rural hospitals in America. I'm really concerned that as this virus process goes along and this trend follows as it is doing, that people who live in rural areas where their hospital has closed, what are they going to do for health care? Because our health care is entirely based on profit. The drugs are all based on profit. The drugs that they do or don't develop because it's not profitable to develop a drug. We don't have proper clinics and hospitals. We don't have the stuff stockpiled. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We could spend the whole program just talking about this one thing. But it all arises from the fact that profit is more important than health. Yes, a, a, a presenting problem on a national basis, and it's one that has been stubbornly resistant to change or modification, it seems to me, Stefan. That's right. I mean, this isn't, you know, this is not some political partisan uh, statement. I don't care about politics. What I care about is well-being. I think the function of the state should be to foster well-being. That's the first thing that all politicians ought to be thinking about. Does this, is this compassionate, life-affirming, and does whatever it is they're talking about, does it foster well-being? And if the answer is no, then you just don't do it. And from the point of view of voters, I suggest to people that you stop thinking in terms of Democrats and Republicans and you start asking yourself the question, of the people that are available that I can vote for, which individual is most likely to be compassionate, life-affirming, and supportive of well-being. It makes things very simple. It does. One of the things that, that I find so interesting about this is the intersection of the pandemic with the economic downturn that goes along with it, because we're actually fighting on two fronts, the economic front and the health front simultaneously. And I don't recall anything else quite like that in, in recent history. Well, it's, you don't recall it because we, are, we have become so utterly to profit as the only social priority that in earlier times, mean, I don't know, I, I, you know, we've never physically met. We talk on the radio, but um, when I was a boy, the, the uh, uh, polio 
epidemic, you know, people just turn to, or you look at the preparation that went on when Roosevelt set in motion the programs that got us through the Depression and prepared for the Second War. We need to recognize that the function of the state should be to foster well-being. And if we're not fostering well-being, we end up as we are now. I mean, I actually heard, I could hardly believe this, I actually heard evangelical preachers and far-right politicians talking about older people, 70 and above, should go back to work. Oh, yes, it might kill you, but it will save the economy. Actually said that. We're going to sacrifice the, the capitalist approach is more important than the well-being of the elders of the country. Uh, this is astonishing to me. And in that regard, I know, astonishing, enraging. I believe it was earlier this week that the lieutenant governor of Texas, let me see if I have the name correct, I believe it's Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas even indicated his belief that people's grandparents today would be willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the economy. There are a lot of us going, well, governor, lieutenant governor, how about you go first? Because yes. he's no spring chicken. <laughs> if you want to show us the way, you'll be a hero. We'll make a big statue for you yeah, start afterwards. That trend for us. Yeah, start that trend for us. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same reaction. Okay, well, you go first, and you take your grandparents with you. I, I just, I just, I, you know, the thing about pandemics and crises in general, but pandemics particularly, is that when you stress a system, its weaknesses become very evident and noticeable. And as this pandemic has stressed our system, you can see it's, it's, it's obvious, I mean, it's blatant, the imbalances in values, because this is really about values. I heard the Michigan governor this morning talking about the fact that he's not getting things that she had ordered because she had, said something unpleasant about Trump, so now she, she's been told that the vendors have been uh, uh, instructed not to send stuff to her. I mean, it's just, it's, this is the craziest way of dealing with a pandemic that you could think about. It's, it's just deadly astonishing. Crazy. So, yeah, we're people are dying, people are suffering, the economy is suffering, all of this happening because we weren't prepared we didn't get prepared you know i you read i'm sure you saw that when trump came into office there was a 69 page uh, uh briefing that was prepared for him about how to prepare for a pandemic they were briefed on it they had long discussions about it he completely disregarded it that's why we're in the situation we're in i mean and yet his his ratings have gone up so that tells you something also very interesting. Stefan, I'm going to hold on to that point because I want to take that on the other side of a break coming up here in a few minutes. I want to discuss that particular item with you, this idea of Mr. Trump's approval rating actually going up during all of this. And we will get to that. I, I think there is a little bit of theorizing to be done here. And Suzanne and I would like to kick that around with you. Let me quote to you, sir, from USA Today today. 
GOP Representative Thomas Massey is facing a deluge of criticism from Republicans, Democrats, and even President Donald Trump for hinting at a last-minute vote change on the coronavirus relief package that has forced lawmakers to travel back to Washington Friday. The Kentucky Republican, who opposes the bipartisan bill expected to be passed in the House, has suggested he wants to hold a recorded vote in the House meaning at least a majority of House lawmakers would need to be present to pass the bill and send it to Trump for final approval. Now, ghastly as that is, Stefan, do you, I'm just throwing this out to anybody there, if, in case you're thinking, wow, Kentucky Republican, what do you expect? It isn't all about being a so-called hick. That's stereotypical. It isn't always indexed to one's presumed lack of education and insight. Stefan, I'm putting you on the spot here, buddy. Do you know where Representative Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky, went to school? No, I do not. He got his bachelor's and his master's of science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And okay, this is so what he's, he's doing with it. Yeah. Well, uh, if you look at the difference uh, between Kentucky and Tennessee, you can see something that I have noticed particularly prominent in the in, in the what's going on in the pandemic, and that is the difference in response between the Republican governors and legislatures and the Democratic governors and legislatures. I mean, you look at Florida, for instance, where they had people out in the thousands because they didn't close their beaches. They're not closing restaurants. You know, the Florida governor, oh, what's the big problem? You look at Kentucky and Tennessee, for instance, and the difference in the response to the pandemic that's going on between um, Governor Andy Bashir uh, in Kentucky and uh, Tennessee governor, and you see Bill Lee, and you see uh, completely different state courses of the development of the pandemic, we, we, we have gotten to a point where when you stress the system, these kinds of, these differences, these failures to prepare become really evident. You know, in Washington, for instance, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, we have, we were, of course, one of the original epicenters in Washington state. But we have locked down very tightly, and um, as a result of that, we're seeing a decrease, uh, even though, uh, I mean, this, 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 well, let me also say, it's very hard when you look at these figures about how many people there are, because we aren't testing, so we just don't have enough tests. So it's really, everything you hear on the television everything you read in the newspapers about these figures, you always have to bear in mind, because there is not universal testing, we really don't know. This is just the people who either got tested or came down with it. But um, in Washington, because of the, what the governor's doing, and in California, same thing, um, you're seeing a, 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 an attempt to really grapple with it. Whereas in some of these Republican states, 
the governor's, well, well, what's the problem? You know, there's no, it's no big deal. We can get along, you know, just be careful. And you see the difference in the outcomes, uh, Louisiana being a very good example. Louisiana had the Mardi Gras going on with thousands yes, of people exactly. in the street. And, and you know, I have, I have gained a new uh, appreciation for uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo because I've been watching a lot of his daily briefings on TV. And he really has done what I think is a good job keeping people informed as to what's going on. I agree. In fact, I am very struck because I listened to them uh, both. The difference between the Andrew Cuomo uh, pressers and uh, Trump pressers is, I mean, I actually don't understand why they, I mean, I, the president, I guess, that they broadcast the press events that he holds because he tells so many lies. You know, now he's saying, Oh, well, Andrew Cuomo doesn't really need 30,000 ventilators. Uh, he's just making that up. I mean, it's just that kind of stuff. Just, you listen to it, and it just makes you crazy. Yes. Because it's not true. It's utterly wrongheaded to say something like that. But, I, you know, I, what I see is that Cuomo is coming out of this as the adult. Right. A man who's giving these things every day and is telling the truth. And while the, these White House pressers are, are just bizarre. Yes. <laughs> well, well, they're like campaign rallies. Right. That's the problem. Well, he can't yes. campaign rally, so he's, he's trying to do it in these daily briefings. I keep waiting for him to come, yes. come up to the lectern, wear that MAGA hat, put on the red MAGA hat. Come on, you know you want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I agree. Once again, I completely agree with you. I thought, I, in fact, I said to my wife, now the next thing we're going to see is he's going to come out with one of those red hats on. <laughs> because he's, from his point of view, this appears to be a, a public affair, a public relations problem, not a health problem. Right. Yes. So, right. Yes. I, I should have going to take him. Please yeah, finish I mean, your thought. Exactly. Well, you know, this, as I said, this comment by this Michigan governor, I just thought was so astonishing. Vendors have been told not to send her stuff because she offended him because she said it was, the federal response wasn't a, a very good response, and so they're not going to give her the things that she needs. I mean, what kind of country is that? What indeed, and we want to get to that on the other side of the break. I just thought I would throw this in, a bit of dark humor from uh, former, uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who tweeted this morning that there was breaking news. Representative Thomas Massey has tested positive for being an a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, John Kerry, coming up with the zinger. Unbelievable. 
We're going to go ahead and take a break here. We're, we're talking to Stefan Schwartz, and that's a good thing because this man is an intellectual who definitely has heart. He has soul to go with a wonderful, refined mind. And we're going to tackle the, the pandemic rhetorically and, yes, politically, because it seems to be inevitable, does it not? We are Manson Mitchell. We will be right back with more of this interview on the other side of a short break. So stay with us right here at Seattle's epicenter of alternative talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is mansonmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Right now, Doctors Without Borders medical teams are operating in some of the most remote and dangerous corners of the world. When front yards become front lines, when disaster erupts, when disease rages, when communities collapse under crisis, at the crossroads of conflict and epidemic, where there are no hospitals, that's where we operate. We go where conditions are the worst because that's where we're needed most. In nearly 70 countries, we're saving lives threatened by violence, disease, malnutrition, and catastrophic events. Donors are vital to our mission. Your response is critical to our response in places where a few others will go. That's where we operate. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Stefan Schwartz, author of The Eight Laws of Change, for his insights on changes affecting us today as a result of COVID-19. On Saturday, Carol Ann Carey, psychic medium, makes her debut on Manson Mitchell, and she will be taking your calls in the second half hour. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson and Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Stefan Schwartz. Stefan, you have some wonderful books. We have a few of them in our library, but if people would like to catch, catch up with the Schwartz Report or find you online, where is the best place for them to do that or places? Uh, the best place is uh, the Schwartz Report, which I, give, I do every day and I give away free is My personal website is stephanasports.com and uh, where my books and everything are listed and and my papers can be gotten by going to academia.edu and searching on my name or go to YouTube and search on my name and there are hundreds of interviews. 
Wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Stefan, and, and thank you very much for getting up earlier than your usual time because you do work some odd hours and yet you made time available for ourselves and for our listenership. So we are grateful to you. I wanted to give you the opportunity, Stefan, to talk a bit more broadly about the implications of this pandemic as it works its way around the world in its lethal manner. Our response to it, we have more cases than anyone now. I believe officially we have more cases than China. So with that being the case, you mentioned several minutes before the break that President Trump's approval rating actually has gone up. And that leads me to ask you a question about which I know you have some considered thoughts to offer, and that is, in a crisis of these proportions, is it possible, and remember, we are in the middle of a presidential election year, that being the case, do you suspect that under the conditions that prevail, the electorate, generally speaking, will default in a way to authoritarian leadership because it gives you the feeling of being safer somehow. Yes, and I think that's actually a very good analysis. In times of crisis, the inclination of people is don't change things, go with the leader, uh, don't cause disruptions. And of course, because they're lied to, I mean, there are two issues that are going on. One, I agree with you that that's very typical human behavior when there is a crisis that you sort of rally around whoever the leader is. I think that accounts for part of it. And the other part is that is, again, you know, as I've said earlier, when you're in a really stressful situation like a pandemic, the weaknesses of the system really become clear. And so the other part of this is we are seeing the results of the misinformation, disinformation, right-wing media bubble. It's really very sharply brought into focus. Because if you remember, for weeks, Fox Network, for instance, oh, this is a hoax, it's nothing to worry about, it's just another flu, blah, 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 blah. Don't pay any particular attention. It's all a hoax to, to embarrass or to help him lose the election or whatever. And so you have a large percentage of the population who get their information from this kind of fake news operation um, where they just sort of make up facts um, and deal in conspiracies. And if that's where you get your news, then your understanding of what is going on is completely out of whack with reality. And so it's not only that we're seeing the abject failure of the federal government to be prepared and to be responsive and to operate properly in the, in the face of the stress of the pandemic, but you realize that a significant percentage of the population really don't have correct facts and have no real idea of what's going on. So I think that is also a strong factor. Uh, I... I think it's going to depend, this election is going to depend on the course of this pandemic. Because when we come out on the other side of this pandemic, people can look back and take an assessment of what happened. It's going to be extremely negative for Trump and, and the Republican-dominated Senate and 
I mean, this, the things that they're doing, for instance, and the other thing that happens is that when you have something like a pandemic, it dominates the news so overwhelmingly that all kinds of stuff goes on under that, that spotlight or out of that spotlight. For instance, Trump is using the pandemic to suspend all kinds of regulatory oversight and safety precautions and pollution controls. I mean, they just announced they're going to reduce the regulatory and safety oversight of nuclear facilities and waste sites. That's just, isn't that just lovely? Does the name Chernobyl and Fukushima mean anything to you? They've suspended all kinds of, uh, he's allowed the use of, of GMO and, and toxins in uh, national public wetlands. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Underneath the stress of the pandemic, there is this complete use of the pandemic as cover to carry out all kinds of really harmful and detrimental social policies whose only beneficiaries are rich people and corporations. So that, I think, will eventually emerge in people's consciousness, but it'll be on the other side, because right now, if you watch the news, as you do and I do, you know, all there is is just the pandemic. You don't hear this other stuff, but it's going on uh, beneath the radar. Stefan, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the right-wing media bubble. And it was interesting, when you said the word bubble, I thought to myself, don't bubbles eventually burst? Could there be something in this pandemic that has people looking a little differently at the right-wing media? Well, I, I, I don't, uh, Suzanne, I'm not sure if it's going to happen as the curve is going up because people are so just overwhelmed with the, the increase of cases and all that. But on the other side of this, when, when people take a look at, you know, what happened, what did we learn, that sort of thing, it's going, I think, to become very clear. Um, I personally think I am a strong proponent of free speech. You ought to be able to, you know, but as the Supreme Court once ruled, um, Free speech is okay, but you can't yell fire in a theater. Uh, so I think we need to, it, it, we used to have uh, legislation, it ended in the Reagan era, we, uh, another Republican era. We used to have legislation that you had to, uh, that uh, news media had to report uh, actual facts and fair and balanced media. And when that got suspended, and that's what gave rise to what we think of as now as the right-wing media. But I think looking back, we're going to see that a number of media outlets were actively providing disinformation and wrong guidance to people. I mean, I noticed in Washington State, for instance, one of the NPR stations has stopped broadcasting the Trump pressers because they say the information is so wrong 
that it misleads people. And I think we're going to find when we when we assess all of this that the activity of of the far right media in calling the pandemic a hoax and a democratic scheme and and conspiracy that all of that completely misled Americans. And so they were utterly unprepared for what happened. And now we find, Stefan, in phrasing that I find anything but accidental. You know, Donald Trump is accused of a lot of reckless speech and with good reason. But it is not careless phrasing. Rather, it is entirely strategic, in my view, that Donald Trump now openly regards himself as a wartime president. That, my friend, is election talk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's an example. I mean, you have it. That is an example of what we're talking about. I mean, when you listen to these these press events that he holds, they, as you pointed out, they seem more like political rallies than they do information. Pieces. I mean, the difference between the Como press events and the Trump press events is so startling. That, I mean, everybody, I think, is beginning to get this. You know, Como does the best he can to tell the truth and to tell his people in New York, this is, this is what I know, this is what we're trying to do. When you listen to these Trump events, that, I mean, the business, he says, oh, Como doesn't really need 30,000 ventilators. He's just making that up. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. That, that. First of all, it's a lie. And second of all, it is a, it's a complete obfuscation of the actual facts, and it sounds like a political event. And as we said earlier, all we need are the red hats. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. As a cachet. That's right. I, let me ask you a question. I'm going to go out on the skinny branch here. We're in the midst of a presidential election year. So I wanted to ask you, Stefan, could you foresee a likely circumstance? And when I say likely, I mean even a 20 to 30 percent possibility. There are primaries now that have been postponed. We do not have a, de- a nominee from the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders is still in the race. And you've got Joe Biden, of course. Is there any possibility with this incredible set of circumstances, daunting as they are, could you see any momentum behind the idea of a draft Cuomo movement? Yes, I could, actually. Uh, I'm I, I, so late to start, but yes. Uh, uh, Biden disappearance, that's the only thing I can call it. I mean, Sanders made a impassioned speech the other day on the Senate floor, but Biden just kind of disappeared. And I think that, I think that politically, I think that's a very bad mistake. But more importantly, it's, I think, suspending the whole momentum that he was building up. I mean, my personal opinion to me, I have to, in the interest of full disclosure, I would like to have seen Sanders Warren, because I think that they are the only two people that are actually seriously talking about what climate change is going to do and the need for universal birthright health care and those kinds of things. I mean, 
when you look at what climate change is bringing, pandemics being just one example, you can see that those countries which are have made well-being their first priority are doing much better and are much better prepared. So could Como get drafted? Yes, I think that actually is possible. The other thing, which I'm actually surprised you all haven't brought up, I want to see, well, let me frame it a little differently. Every day, billions, billions of financial transactions are carried out with credit cards securely. And I don't see why we could not have online voting so that people don't have to stand in line. Why we couldn't have online voting. I mean, mail voting would be my second choice. But my first choice would be online voting using the same security procedures that seem to be good enough for the corporations who do these billions of of financial transactions every day very securely because I am quite concerned between the voter suppression of the Republican Party, the gerrymandering, the rigging of the courts, all of that that's going on. I mean, I don't know if you saw that Mitch McConnell's asking all the elder, older judges, please retire so we can appoint a nice young um, ideological ultra-right conservative to your position. I mean, it's that blatant. But I am very concerned that how this election is going to take place. Now, if the pandemic crests and begins to go down during the summer, everything may be fine. But if this thing continues, how are we going to complete a vote where every American who is entitled to vote is able to vote and that's got to either be vote by mail or vote online. Stefan, I, I received in the mail a letter regarding the census and, along with a code. And it said, go online, here's the code, fill out the census. If we don't hear from you in a few weeks, we will send you a census in the mail. And so what you're talking about is already being done with the census. You can go online and complete it, or if you don't get it completed online, they'll send it to you in the mail. So for sure, voting could be done the same way. Yes, and I, and I, it takes time to do that, to get that all set up. And in the month between now and November, when we vote, I think that ought to be the first priority because the preservation of American democracy, which is under attack, I think is going to be a critical determinant in how we go forward. Now, this is interesting, Steph, and I'm going a little far afield and I'll circle back. But when it was time to discuss how do we implement marijuana legalization referendums, it wasn't being done by legislatures at the time, in the time frame I'm referring to. But they states would ask, okay, if we're going to do this, this is what our electorate wants. They've said so at the polls. Then they went to Colorado. How did you do that? How did you set up these dispensaries? How do you regulate it? How do you tax it? They went to Washington. How did you do this? How did you implement this in order to figure out how it's done? So too, Stefan, I think that People who are in positions of power, who make elections happen, 
could look to Oregon as a model of how to use the mail-in ballot 100% for the sake of safety and also in order to have a paper ballot so that it's not messed with by the Russians. I completely agree. I mean, in Washington State, where I live, we do all our voting by mail. We don't, we don't, I mean, every time I vote, and I vote in every election I can vote in, from the county level to the, to the state level, national level, all voting in Washington is done by mail. And so you get a, a mail-in ballot and you drop it off at a designated, they're, they're like mailboxes that they have scattered around, and, and you just put your ballot in and you don't have to stand in line. There's none of that. There's no seven-hour wait that we're, such as we're going on in North Carolina. Uh, you don't have any of that. And all the and there's a paper ballot, and it all gets counted, and you know, blah blah blah. So my point was about the debit card or credit card stuff is we clearly know how to do this at the level of billions of transactions a day. So we know how to do it. That's not the issue. The issue is, does the political will exist among both parties to create a fair election in which every American who wishes to vote can vote. That's the issue. Do we have that political will? I'm not sure, but it's very clear to me that we have the capability to do it. Yet we certainly have the capability to do it. Do we have the will? That is the quintessential question. One state north of where Suzanne and I reside in Georgia, there was active vote suppression, and to all appearances anyway, they got away with it. And this continues to yeah. go on. Red states have this capacity. I almost think they're in communication with each other. I mean, I don't think that's a cynical proposition at all. They communicate they seemingly in, in cahoots, as it were, in order to maintain Republican rule when they are the minority party. And one of the great ways you do that is by keeping people who are likely to vote against you from voting at all. That is exactly correct. And yes, it is completely coordinated. That's what Alec was about, or is about. This is all coordinated. They try it in one state, and if they can make it work, then they try it in other states. And yes, you look at Georgia, you look at North Carolina, and the voter suppression activity was just blatant, and you can see that, that there is a conscious, explicit, coordinated effort to keep uh, young people, people of color, uh, from voting, even though they're entitled to vote, because they don't vote the way the Republican Party wants, so we don't want them to vote. We want to make it as difficult as possible. And these long lines that you see about people trying to vote, I mean, first of all, shows you how committed people are to voting. But second of all, shows you as clearly as you could make it that there is a conscious effort to make this difficult as possible, where it ought to be as accommodating as possible. And we and it's not a matter of loss of control. And that's why I use the debit credit card thing. We can do we do this billions of times every day. Everybody's happy. Nobody's concerned about the security. 
Um, we have the protections in place, and we could do the same thing with voting. Washington State already does that. Oregon, I mean, you know, um, I don't, I can't remember whether Colorado has uh, mail-in votes, but it clearly is doable. It's just a question of political will and whether the voters demand it. This is a time when we need citizen action. We need to have people speaking out, standing up, doing what needs to be done in order to protect American democracy, because it is under active threat. And if we don't fix it, if we don't demand that it be done correctly, then we're going to lose it. And once you lose it, as history shows, it's very hard to get it back. It is very hard to get it back, especially in circumstances that argue, to those who are predisposed to believe it, circumstances that argue for an authoritarian approach to governance because we just have to because it will save American lives. You can make that case, however speciously, and you will get millions of people to buy in. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, well, as I said, I consider the coronavirus pandemic to be a wake-up call to Americans to decide what kind of government, what kind of country they want to live in, and what is going to be required to prepare for what climate change is going to bring, because this is not the only pandemic. As these things mutate, we're going to see more of this. We're going to see all kinds of other stressors. I mean, we haven't even talked about migration and what's going to happen as sea rise. I, you know, they're, they're now talking about the melting of an Antarctic uh, ice block, which could raise the water level as much as five feet. Well, you think about that for a minute, and you think that 52% of Americans live in what they call a coastal county, and what would happen to all the coastal cities if the sea level went up, anything like that, and you realize there's going to be a huge migration. I spoke at a conference of, of doctors, and I said to them, you know, there are going to be three big migrations you can already see in the United States, away from the coast, out of the southwest, away from the coast because there's too much water, out of the southwest because there's not enough water and, and the temperature goes up too much, and out of central states because of violent uh, weather events like tornadoes. And it's not just going to impact the places that people leave. It's going to impact the places that they go to. And I said to this group of doctors, could your emergency room handle 5,000 more visits per week than they're currently getting. And these doctors just looked at me and said, well, Yes, they were flabbergasted, I'm quite sure. There. Uh, thank you for bringing so much of this foremost to our attention, Stefan Schwartz. We're always delighted to have you with us and grateful that you joined us today. As we move along in this pandemic, we hope to speak with you again. Thank you, sir. Okay, you have a great day. And you as well. Coming up next. Uh, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Have the best weekend possible, everybody. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.